Blog Talk Radio. Chatting with Sherry is presented by the writers and illustrators of the future. They've been providing a means for new and budding writers to have a chance for their creative efforts to be seen and acknowledged. Welcome to Chatting with Sherry. Today I'm very happy to welcome sci-fi bulletin editor and publisher Paul Simpson. Now, this is a recorded episode, so please don't call in. Here's Paul. Hi, Paul. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's going to be fun. Um, for our listeners, uh, uh, why don't you tell a little bit about yourself? My name's Paul Simpson. Uh, at the moment, I am the managing editor of Sci-Fi Bulletin, which is www.scifibulletin.com, which is a science fiction, fantasy, horror, spy-fi site that covers news, interviews, reviews of stuff in that genre. I'm also former editor of the official Star Trek magazine for five years, and I started in this business as the editor of Dreamwatch uh, in the late 90s, which is what got me out to the States and Canada and Australia and all around the world, uh, visiting film and TV sets and interviewing creatives on side of the camera. I'm also uh, an editor. I edit for Angry Robot Books. I'm one of the consulting editors for them. And I work on editorial teams with Simon Schuster, with BBC Books for the Doctor Who range, amongst others, and uh, various different sorts of editing projects. That's sort of the work side of it. Cool. Um, I love Dreamwatch. I used to get those. I was like, that was one of my favorite magazines. <laughs> well, that was uh, when we went onto the newsstand in the States was, or when that deal was uh, going through, was when Gary Lee, who had started Dreamwatch's uh, Doctor Who Bulletin, which was a uh, often controversial Doctor Who fan magazine, uh, it became a bit more diverse when Doctor Who went off air in 1989. And Next Gen was just starting over here. Next Gen didn't start until a bit later. I think it was 1990, if I remember rightly. So Gary expanded it and then realised he could take it as a newsstand magazine of bookstores over here. And uh, that was a lot, lot, lot more work than he was expecting. And uh, it just worked out by pure happenstance that I was available and looking for something to do because of various um, situations and uh, we joined forces and I basically took Dreamwatch up to the next level and stayed with it until middle of 2000 um, and shortly after that uh, Gary sold the magazine to Titan and I went off freelancing. (laughs) Yeah, I I always love those um, magazines. The, the covers were always so gorgeous, and the um, information was great. And I, well, I mean, it was it was it was a great magazine. I'm sorry it's gone. <laughs> well, that was the synergy actually of uh, Gary and I because the covers were very much his baby. Um, yeah, he didn't know, doesn't know, and he's admitted quite freely the ins and outs and the minutiae of the material. But he would look at an image and he'd go, that one. And he'd be right. Um, 
you know, it's 25 years later, I can admit it to him now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, shut up. Um, but, uh, yes, that was it. But the I developed a core team of writers on that, which is something I've done again, you know, two decades later with Sci-Fi Bulletin, um, which I should add was um, not mine originally. That was a joint project between Brian, J. Rob, and I. Um, and then I brought Brian out a few years back. But uh, we basically, Dreamwatch was always, the idea was we brought people who knew stuff about series and the instruction to them was tell me something I don't know and bearing in mind my background and what I know about shows and what I've picked up over the years you know somebody had to dig deep and that meant that if they surprised me then they likely were they're going to surprise you and every other reader who picked it up and it, it was a, an attitude that you know served well it was like, uh, that was my favorite of those magazines at the time. I used to, That was when I always picked up. So I was a regular. I didn't subscribe because I didn't subscribe to magazines. I just couldn't afford that. But I, when I used to get every, I used to get every magazine though, so I might as well subscribe. <laughs> well, I, over in the States, I think because of the postage and the mail costs, it probably was easier and cheaper for you to go into your Barnes and Noble um, yeah. and pick it up from there. Yeah. Albeit you've got it six, seven weeks later than you know, it was available over here, so some of the yeah, you know, the key stuff maybe was wasn't as timely. But yeah, when we took stuff down the um subscription house that dealt with it was actually Gary's mum. Um and, you know, she'd be sending the stuff out, but it was costing as much for the postage as it was for the actual issue itself. Wow. Yeah, that's something I've noticed when I... I, I get a lot of stuff internationally because I love English uh, TV series and I love Australian TV series, so I I get a lot of stuff. But it costs so much if you want to get... It, it's easy. This is what I do. <laughs> I, ask a I ask a friend who lives in either England or Australia, would you buy this? I'll pay you, and then can you bring it with you when you come to the U.S. next yeah. time? Because <laughs> it's cheaper. Oh, every, when I was traveling regularly over, we would uh, bring issues across, and you know, I'd go down to the the big um, USPS by um, the airport, and uh, I used to go in there regularly uh, with a whole mound of issues to go out because it was easier that way. Yeah. It's easier to take a flight than it is to get a subscription because it just is so astonishing. It, <laughs> it was then. I think um, that's not going to be the case for a couple of years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. But it was just, it was really, um, it was that's that was one of, that's one of my little things. Now I can't do it, of course, because of the lockdowns everywhere. But, um, and everything that I had planned to do this year has been cancelled. Um, <laughs> but... You and the rest of the planet. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's horrible, you know, all the people who are sick and, and, and everything. And it's a horrible time. Um, how are you handling the lockdown? What are you doing? Or does, it, does it affect you because you, do you work from Not home? Really. I mean, I work from home, um... 
a lot of publishing is still happening in the same way as it did. Sci-Fi Bulletin still is. I run a couple of, well, I was, at the time of lockdown, I was running two choirs. One of them I was actually leaving about a month after lockdown started. So those aren't happening in the same way. Uh, the one that is continuing, we've gone online. We've found ways of work using Zoom to get everybody together. So we've got the social side of it. And each week I'm finding new devious ways of getting it so that people can sing together uh, or all be singing to the same accompaniment. And it's kept it going. We're now coming into our eighth week uh, of meeting at the same time as we usually did. And uh, it works, but no, my wife and I can't go out. Um, I actually went down, well, we think, you know, we haven't got the antibody um, anti test here yet. Uh, but uh, we think I went down with it actually the week before lockdown. I was quite badly ill, not hospitalisation needed ill, but uh, our Prime Minister described it as being like attacked by a mugger. And that's exactly what it felt like. I was driving back from Gatwick Airport. Uh, it was absolutely fine when I got in the car. I was about halfway home, and it felt like somebody had reached around. You know that cliche in the movies where you, the, the hero gets in the car, and there's somebody reaches around from behind with a gun. Yeah. Well, it's as if somebody had done that, but it was Doc Ock doing it uh, and squeezing. Uh, it was very, very frightening. Um, and, yeah, I, in our home... You know, on the, I'll use Americanisms, between the first and second floors, we've got a dozen steps, and mm -hmm. they're not at any sort of heavy angle. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't go up or down those without being seriously out of breath. But it took its time, and, you know, the lockdown, meaning that I couldn't run around like be my usual, slightly maniac version. Uh, Anybody who knows me will recognise that description. <laughs> um, yeah, I had, I have had to had enforced rest, and I think it's helped. But um, you know, we're not sure my wife had it, but she had the problem with a lack of sense of smell. So we don't know. Um, we don't know if we get the antibody test. Does that mean we're immune? Does it mean we're just immune to this strain? What does it mean? So you know, it's one of those things that I'll be honest. I try not to think about. Um, because, you know, we have known people who've uh, passed away from it. My own father is nearly 90. He has lung problems. He's in a nursing home, a uh, care home. And uh, so far, so good. But, yeah. Yeah, I have. I, one of my friend's dad's passed. He's uh, actually pretty close to my age, so it was a little shocking. Um it, it the the thing doesn't hit just old people or young people. It hits yeah, everybody. Yeah. You know. On a nicer topic. Okay. Um. Anyway. Um. You are an editor. You're a publisher. What do you read? Uh, a lot of my daytime job is reading, it's editing, proofing, copy editing, whatever. So to read, it's, I'm either reading stuff to review for Sci-Fi Bulletin, uh, which is, yeah, I'll make sure that I've got things like the new Stephen King, which I'm actually currently reading, uh, the new John Connolly, the new, the most recent Joe Hill, uh, all of those new, 
um, the next Rick McCammon when it comes out. Those sort of things, they're, they're what I enjoy reading. If I'm reading for pure pleasure or just something to take my mind off it, I'm working my way back through Leslie Charles' original Saint books. Oh. Uh, yeah, so the issue is really well more that basically from 8 in the morning till 6 at night uh, I am staring at a screen I am reading and my brain is engaged in it in a certain way so to read for pleasure um, you know is when I get away on holiday when I go away on holiday you know in the days before ebooks, and even now I'd actually like the, the physical book um, we would have a suitcase that was filled with books and I would get through I would just sit and read um, you know, eight, seven, eight hundred pages a day, just because I didn't have other distractions. Currently, I'd rather, you know, if I'm staying sitting reading all the time, I'll go and watch something. Um, you know, occasionally, if like the Steve King book, um, recently read uh, Jessica Brauner's um, new Captain Jack book, uh, which is uh, a fun steampunk pirate tale which is well worth picking up sounds uh, good because I love Captain Jack <laughs> not Captain Jack as in Torchwood oh this is a, this is a lady no this is a lady pirate um it's um basically 18th century she's a um a French lady who has become a pirate um we've got zeppelins and um naughty priests and uh goodness knows what else uh, it's called Captain Jack the First Sin uh, and uh, yeah look Jessica Brauner oh Jessica oh okay yeah, yeah I actually yeah. interviewed her about that book I forgot that it was yeah, about that's Captain that's Jack, Jack. <laughs> yeah, that Jack. okay uh, but yes and I also yeah if I'm taking the dogs out I will um, listen to audio books there's a lot of stuff from um, a company called Big Finish who do audio versions of various licenses, including the all Doctor Who ranges, but also other things from uh, the past shows from British history, basically, British telefantasy history. Uh, so there, you know, catch up with those. Um, but it's been, because this year has been what it is and what it's likely to be, I've got a pile of books that's looking at me going, when are you going to read me? And I'm thinking... <laughs> And wife going, when are you going to get these off the show? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm tired of looking at them. Do something. <laughs> yeah. Um, when you were a kid, did you have a favorite author or a favorite genre? Um, genre was definitely sci-fi and adventure. Always have been. I read, I read voraciously as a kid. Um. The go back to Leslie Charteris. I saw the Roger Moore series. They used to run them during school holidays in the mornings over here on uh, television. We didn't. It, this was before we had real daytime television in the UK, and uh, they would rerun these sixties episodes. And I can remember saying to my mum when I was about eight or nine, what, "What's the backstory?" Well, that wasn't the phrase because we didn't say things like that then. But um, you know what happened how did he become the saint and so she had some of the books which she'd been given as a kid um, and got me into the books and I never looked back with them I've read them countless times I love things like Alistair MacLean 
um, Desmond Bagley, authors who have basically almost forgotten today, and of course Ian Fleming and James Bond, uh, which has also been one of my big interests all my life. Uh, my first published book was a co-written book about Bond. I've written three since then. I had to think of them. Uh, <laughs> with most, um, well, one of them I sort of only half count, but uh, it's a collection of quotes, so it does count, but it doesn't. Um, the most recent one, Bond versus Bond, we did a new edition to come out ready for No Time to Die. It hit the stores the day that they decided to push the movie. Ah. Uh, absolutely, absolutely the right call. Um, yeah, and I think the idea is that we'll probably just re-update with a few more things because a couple of other things have happened in the world of Bond since. Uh, so have another edition out in the shops ready for, fingers crossed, it's opening at Thanksgiving. Um, but yeah, I mean, Bond was... And that, that sort of genre, but I would... At the time, you could take, I think it was either six or eight books out of the library, and it was quite literally, particularly in school holidays, I would read them, and I'd be returning four of the books each day and getting another four out. I loved reading um, fiction to a degree, non-fiction, certainly stuff about the making of shows. Um, Stephen Whitfield's book, The Making of Star Trek, David Gerald's books on... Trouble with Tribbles mm -hmm. um, and the world of Star Trek. I, I mean, still have them. Are, <laughs> yeah, enough to know them. Yeah, and become my um, friend. Uh, all of those sort of things, all the books about the making of Doctor Who, were you know like Bibles, and they were they were an inside thing. And it got to uh, all the writers of Doctor Who books count as um, favourite authors. A gentleman by the name of Terence Dix, who was the script editor of the show in the seventies. Um, pioneered the novelizations or there were three in the 60s but he basically um, wrote the vast majority of the ones that followed in the 70s and 80s and it's no exaggeration to say he taught a generation of kids to read over here in the same way that Harry Potter was credited with that you know a few years later and uh, Terence was my very first interview in the back of a library book uh, it said on the flap it had the author information which it didn't on the paperbacks that I had and it said Terence Dix is da 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 lives in Hampstead which is part of North London we were living in South London at the time and in those days you had the telephone directories which were sort of great big thick slabs <laughs> of like things and you, I found one for I grew up for that too <laughs> e to K no yeah E to K L to R and S to Z uh, Z and uh, so I got the A to D one out, and I looked up Dix Terence. It had the spelling of his name wrong, but it had an address in Hampstead. And I can still remember the phone number now. I won't say it because he, his uh, widow still lives there on that number. And I dialed it, and I said, uh, is that Terence Dix? And he said, yes. And uh, I said, my name's Paul Alton Simpson. I had a, used a double barrel name as our family name then. Um, love the books. I'd love to talk to you about it. Could I come and interview you? I was 12 and he said yes and I went up there and I interviewed him and I sat in his huge study and asked him these questions and then a friend of mine and I we printed it in the magazine we went back and asked him more questions he introduced us to another of the writers who lived literally around the corner he sort of came out of his house turned left down a little alleyway turned right and there was Max Max 
Culp's house. And it was an introduction to the inside, the reality of making this stuff. And again, that never left me. I um, sort of steered clear of it in the 80s and early 90s until Dreamwatch came along. And then, you know, was doing the same thing, but instead of it being Terence, it was Joe Straczynski, it was Chris Carter. Um, it was you know, the, all the people on the uh, yeah, Mutinex and you know, all Stargate and all of those shows. It's really interesting because it made me remember something. When I was in um, high school, I used to do a tutoring program that was right next to a major college called uh, Cal State Northridge. And I walked by one day and there were circus tents in the football field. And I'm like, what on earth? And there were police around. And they were shooting Charlie's Angels. Uh, Which ages me, um, but I, I remember I used to love it. We actually <laughs> watched the um, latest film version of it, movie version of it last weekend, and thoroughly enjoyed it. Good, um, but I was just, so I'm walking by, and I said, uh, "What's?" I, I asked one of the policemen. I said, "What's going on?" And he said, "Oh, they're um, they're shooting an episode of Charlie's Angels." Um, I said, "Can I go and look in?" And um, I actually didn't go to any of my classes for the rest of the day. Because um, when I walked in, they said, hi, are you a student? I said, yes. I didn't mention I was a high school student, but I said, yes. And they said, would you like to be an extra? And I go, it's, it's not, and they said, it's not a paid extra. It's just an extra extra to be in a crowd during a circus uh, thing. And, I, and you get to see the circus. I go, okay. Um, so after that, I went to the PA and I said, um, I'm on the school paper, which I wasn't. And I said, could I interview anybody? And he said, let me ask. Hold on a minute. And he came back to me about uh, 20 minutes later and he said, yeah, I have some people you can interview. Come with me. So I walked with him to a trailer that had... Cheryl Ladd, who wasn't known yet because it was uh, her first season, and Jacqueline Smith, and uh, Tom uh, Bosley was next door, and he was brought over. And I interviewed them, three of them, for my school paper. Yes. When you were saying that, I was thinking, uh, dreadfully, I was thinking that's a Cheryl Ladd episode. It's really, really, really worrying but that piece of trivia is still in my brain. Oh, it isn't, because it's in mine, too. It's even one of the ones they novelised. Oh! Ones they novelised. But I can actually, yeah, yeah, that's the way my mind works, is that, yeah, I'll remember weird things, somebody will say something like that, and just an odd memory will come out. That was the first one they shot in California, because the first episode was shot was the Hawaiian one. Because that was part of my interview. And um, uh, I asked her if she was nervous and, you know, because of Farah and all that. And she says, yeah, I am very nervous. And we were, she was, everybody was real. I mean, I was, I was seven, no, I was, yeah, 17 years old, almost 18. I was a kid. I looked younger. Um... And they treated me like a kid sister. I mean, they were all really nice to me. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, I mean, 
manufacturing company had a very good reputation, as I recall. Yeah, they were. They everybody was really cool, and they asked me what the name of my paper was, and I told them. And then, as soon as the next day, I I came into the paper because I did, I wasn't on the school paper. I said. I have an exclusive interview with people from Charlie's Angels, and I was an extra. Do you guys want it? And they went looked at me like I just fell off the off the sun and came sliding into earth. Um, <laughs> yeah, we want it. And so um, I had never written an art. I mean, I took journalism class, but I had never really written an article. And so the editor came and sat with me and helped me do the article properly. And yeah, my first article. <laughs> oh. My first interview. <laughs> and I just made up the questions. That it was basically the stuff I wanted to know. Well, that's, but that is, that's the job of an interviewer. The interviewer is there, pardon me, to be in between the reader and the subject. And the, the interview should be about what. The person who's going to read it, listen to it, whatever it is, wants to know. Mm -hmm. And you'll respond to it. In the same way, I describe editing as my job as an editor is to help the writer write what they thought they wrote in the first place. Yeah. And it's, you know, and it's the same thing. And it's, you know, you get certain, you know, there are certain journalists, both sides of the Atlantic, where if you read an article that they do in a glossy magazine or a Sunday supplement or whatever, the piece is as much about them as it is about the person they're interviewing. And so what you're not, you're getting, you're not getting a mirror, you're not getting some information about the person, you're seeing the interviewer reflected in that person. And that's not really, unless the interviewer is of the David Frost caliber. Yeah. Um, you know, and there are people that, yeah, Cronkite. David, David Frost, people like that. People David, who uh, you know are actually probably more intelligent um, and more focused than the people that they're talking to. Mm -hmm. There are many of them. Dick Cavett. Dick Cavett. Yeah. And um, uh, there was another interviewer that was really good, that was really, really bright. Well, there are lots of them in the field. You know, I'm using sort of an example from both sides of the Atlantic, but yeah, it, it is this thing that, uh, and it, it's something that has been a bit of a bugbear in mine in recent times is that there is this idea that the the journalist, that the, the medium is the message, uh, and it isn't. Um, okay, sometimes de facto it is. Sometimes it works out that way, but. Um, you know, it would be like going to the set of, I don't know, say Star Trek, um, and spending your entire time telling Patrick Stewart how much you've enjoyed watching him in um, the X-Men. Which has nothing to do with what you're there for. <laughs> yeah, I would never do that. That's just dumb. <laughs> Oh, trust me, I have been on round tables with people where they've so clearly not even done the basics of background research and their questions are, you know, they're not even listening to what the people are saying. And that's the other thing is that a good interview, and you know this, is an interview is a give and take. 
in terms of if somebody says something that is surprising, you pick up on it. Exactly. A follow-up question. It's one of my favorite things, and people don't seem to know how to do that nowadays. But it isn't. But things like this, uh, and it's the same with everything, it's caught, not taught. You either can or you can't. I mean, I can look at a, you know, this sounds immodest and blowing my trumpet, but I can look at the first chapter of something and know within two minutes whether it's going to be editable, whether it's going to work. Um, I can, you know, because that's just something that's there. And, you know, it's really nice. I've been very lucky in the last two or three years to have worked with um, people I've brought on board Sci-Fi Bulletin who have the same attitude, the same outlook, um, so that I know that when they've done this or something like that, they're going to, when I read it and I read the answer, I know what the next question is going to be because it's the question I'd have asked. Um, you know, because if somebody tells you, and of course, yes, well, that was three years after I shot Jack the Ripper, and then you go on to the next question, it's sort of, duh. Um, hello, do you shot Jack the Ripper? Let's hear something about that. <laughs> uh, and it's, you know, it, it's one reason why, you know, you, particularly young publicists, they're, oh, please um, send me the list of questions and you can't deviate. And I just go, no. Yeah. Oh, no. Well, we'll send the first two. You can monitor it. I will always send you through, if you ask for it, the material to see before I put it up online. Um, I'm very happy to give you that, but I can't do it. And, yeah, maybe it's because I've been doing it long enough and, you know, I can sort of name drop where appropriate. It hopefully helps. Um, But, you know, I don't usually get an issue with that nowadays. But, you know, you do still get it occasionally. Um, I had it with... um, people to do with one big um, cable streaming show and uh, it was somebody who was working on the production side of it uh, who was uh, available for interview and they wanted to know what I was going to ask and I said yeah it'll be this 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 yeah, that's where I'll start from they went well we want the whole thing I went no go and look at similar interviews on the site I'll give you the links they all start from the same place they all go somewhere different and that's the key. Um, when I started, I gave people the interview questions and told them right up front I'd ask follow-up questions, and I don't ask questions in order. Um, I don't, and I still don't. But now I stopped doing that, not because, unless they it, it's somebody who is like, demands it or if it's an actor that really needs to know ahead of time just so they can remember about it because a lot of actors forget shows that they were in yeah but that's fair enough in order for them to do the research that's fine yeah but the thing is is that the reason unless it's those two exceptions i don't do it anymore is because people memorize responses and they give these long memorized responses that sound like they have been sitting in front of a mirror practicing them and it just it's not natural and that's why I stopped doing that well I think I don't know interesting because I'm not sure that people genuinely care enough to memorize it I think that they get told a certain rote answer to it in the way a politician does um, and that's what they trot out and you know it's 
can always tell when somebody's going into that, particularly when it's a load of, um, yeah, you're doing a load of phone and you've got 10 minutes and you know that there's, they've been five people before you and there's five after to grab their interest with something different. There's a um, great story. Uh, you, you know, Peter David, the uh, Star Trek-run uh, Marvel Comics writer. Sure. He uh, did uh, Jimmy Dillon's autobiography and apparently and I, I'm paraphrasing here so Peter if you're hearing this I hope I've got the gist of it right uh, basically he was um, they, Dylan was trying to work out who to go with and people were obviously coming up with the standard questions that they'd ask him and Peter David's one was what was the first thing you remembered on television and it's just a totally different way of going in to um that sort of quite you know that sort of interview and it immediately makes you your mind go somewhere else it's like you tell me the Charlie's Angels story click back memories of bits of Charlie's Angels and I'm pretty sure that that was book number five and it's pink you know <laughs> Lord alone knows where those synapses have snapped into place but yeah they have and that's why it's interesting that's why Michelle's called chatting with Sherry because it's more I've learned something from every guest I talk to because they're talking about stuff that they don't usually talk about. Sounds good. That's just the way it is. I, I'm, don't you feel that way when you are interviewing that? You just you learn something from people that yeah. you probably never had heard before because well, you, you asked in you a different way. Yeah, you hope so. I'm not totally convinced it's always the case. Uh, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> but no, well, it isn't because not because yeah, not everybody is not everybody's interesting. Um, you know, it's a terrible thing to say. It's like you, you know, you say, oh well, you know, you can't say that you don't have a favourite this and you don't have a favourite that. You do. Um, you may do your best not to acknowledge it, which is a completely different thing. Okay. I actually do, but I have too many. It's not that I don't have a favorite. It's that I have, like, favorites in different categories. Yeah. <laughs> like, somebody says, who's your favorite actor? I go, um, classic, modern, today. Yeah. What are you talking about? Uh, TV, movies? I mean, I have, like, all these categories. Yeah. I, 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 I can't just say one person. I, I, I know there are people who have one person they're just completely focused on, but I've never been like that. And they probably aren't, but it's a convenient. And it's also a thing that, um, you know, actors, we're saying on this subject, but I mean, people don't go into acting to be interviewed. No. People don't go into acting to do conventions. Um, you know, I, particularly in the late 90s, and at the time of Dreamwatch, and occasionally since, I've um, emceed interviews on stage in front of. Yeah, visions, thousands of people. Um, I did some stuff at WonderCon last year with the Star Trek Discovery visual effects team. They, um, Jason Zimmerman, the, uh, the VF, VFX supervisor, invited me to come out to uh, Anaheim to uh, moderate their panel, which was lovely. Um, but they, those people, as we've met so many others, weren't necessarily keen on being interviewed. So I had the same thing. Talk to me. Just we're going to have a chat. The fact there's 3,000 people listening is beside the point. Mm -hmm. Don't worry about them. Um, and I've seen actors who 
you know, real A-list actors backstage panicking about going on because they're being asked to be themselves. And there's at least one group of actors, you know, one, one category of actors, should we say, who act because they don't either know who they are or don't want to be who they are. They want to adopt a new personality. They want to whatever it is. So putting them out there in the raw, um, yeah, is petrifying for some. And usually once they've done it once, they're fine. We have it on a smaller scale with um, the community choir I run. Before, there's a lot of people who've never sung before. They've sung in the, the shower. You know, that's it. They come along, they enjoy the rehearsals, they don't have the problem because there's, you know, 30, 40, 50 like-minded people around them. But when we do a concert, they're really worried of because course. they're going in front of people who don't know them. Stage fright. Um, <laughs> it is stage fright of a, of a degree. And I always go, look, what's the worst that can happen? We get it wrong. And nobody will so, know. Well, no, it's not even that. If something goes, no, no, if something goes wrong, I'll admit it. You know, we, we've had it, um, we had a concert where we had to, the, the keyboard had to change, had to transpose because we were, um, we fiddled with the pitch. And so we had one piece in that key and then we had to go into the next one where things were back to normal. And my dear pianist forgot to switch it. So we started with this beautiful, lovely chord with the piano playing it a semitone out. So you get this <laughs> sound. Um, so we sort of stop and I go, shall we try that again? <laughs> Start again. And same thing happens. And so I just got down off the podium, went over and went, right, let's press that and press that and see what happens this time. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Instantly the, 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 um, the pressure's off. The, the attention is on yeah, I pulled the attention onto me, not because I want the attention, but because I don't want the attention off them. Um, and it, you know, you, you do it. It works. It's interesting because I was, actors usually become actors because they enjoy playing different characters. They, it, it, it's a, a form of relief. Even playing bad uh, and playing bad guys is as much fun as playing good guys. Actually, more fun sometimes. I think that that applies to a certain proportion of them. Um, sometimes it's it is just not being themselves, as I say. I think that uh, you've got you have got some people. There there are introverts and extroverts, and there are those who quite genuinely go into it because they want because from age three they've been put up on the dining room table, a la Shirley Temple, um, and you know dance for mummy and. Pardon the American accent, but you know it's that—that uh, <laughs> um, look at me, aren't I wonderful? And you get that, and you, yeah, there is still a good proportion of actors that I meet that are that, um, and quite often have been told that they're the best thing since sliced bread, and maybe they aren't. Um, there's others who absolutely love going into. You know, so you talk to somebody like Doug Jones, uh, yeah, from Discovery and the Guillermo del Toro films and things like that, who, you know, he goes into these prosthetics and everything like that, and it's a form of mask acting. Um, you know, we, and some of the most fascinating conversations I've had with actors uh, has been about the, the craft of audio acting. Yeah, and how you, that's a different and how muscle. You do things. 
Yeah, and that's a complete, you know, there's a mask element to it. There's, um, you know, do you overcompensate the other bits compared with television? But then, you know, television and theatre and film are three completely different media in that respect. So, yeah, it's, uh, I don't think you can catch Everybody does things for a different, for their own reasons. There are certain broad categories you can put them into, but, um, yeah, I wouldn't dream of telling you why you interview or telling my wife why she teaches. I can have ideas based on what you say or what she says, uh, but that's it. Yeah. Um, we're at the point where um, you, if you have anything you'd like to talk about that you'd like to advertise or just bring up, this is it. Uh, well, <laughs> the, the floor is yours. <laughs> well, I think that um, apart from, yeah, I've mentioned books and stuff like that, um, I'm not the world's greatest shill for my own stuff. Um, it's there. I think it's good. It, my, the books I've written have been everything from the history of the Wizard of Oz to serial killers, which is supposedly coming out there on Monday, I believe, but it's been pushed back twice, so it may not be happening. Um, one thing that may well interest people uh, is a new project that is being done by a friend, run by friends of mine, um, Super Marionation, which you may have heard of, which is the Thunderbirds, Captain Scarlet, that. British School of Puppetry, mm-hmm. very much strings attached. Um, has had something of renaissance in recent times. The Thunderbirds series created by Jerry and Silver Anderson, they did some audio adventures that were new with the original cast. And um, the Century 21 team, Stephen LaRiviere, Andrew T. Smith, and team uh, actually filmed these adventures and uh, added to them amazingly and created basically new uh, Super Marination stories they then did some stuff for the Endeavour series which I think it's PBS over there yep. um, and they did a, a, there was a story that was set in a studio where they were making a puppet show so they actually made a new puppet show and during lockdown Stephen and uh, his girlfriend Geraldine and um, one of their colleagues Elliot are in lockdown together other members of their team were in lockdown around the country and they decided they would create a new Super Mario Nation series based on purely what they got in their apartment. And it's called Nebula 75. It's on YouTube. Three episodes so far. Um, it looks like it, it seems to hit a... Sorry, it seems to have struck a chord with people. And, uh, yeah, I would heartily recommend it because I think anybody who likes... Wants to look back at things like Space Patrol, Thunderbirds, as I say, all of those sort of old shows with that innocence and that simplicity. They've done that and they've done it under incredible conditions. When they joke, they've done it for 75p, they've done it for a buck. Um, <laughs> I spent a little bit more on that. But, you know, the puppets are ones that were made that are non copyright that they made themselves. They have made the sets from what they've got in their, you know, in their apartment. Um, their uh, prop maker has created a spaceship for them, but yeah, all of it's had to be filmed and everything like that. So it's that's something that yeah has been great fun watching from the outside happen. And um, I spoke to Stephen about it. You know, anybody interested? There's an interview on Sci-Fi Bulletin with Stephen La Riviere talking about 
how the show happened and uh, what was going on with it. Um, but it's uh, something a bit different that maybe you know your listeners may not have thought of uh, looking up or may not have heard of without somebody like me mentioning it. Great, sounds great. I'm interested. Um. Yeah, oh, <laughs> What was you, YouTube? It's YouTube and just like Nebula seventy five. Okay. Uh, so everybody hear that Nebula seventy five. Um, would you give your um, website and any social media that you have? Yeah, the website is www.sci-fi-bulletin-one-word.com, and that takes you to the front page, which has got our news stories and usually some links. It has a top ten, which is usually a lot of the, the, the core reviews and things like that that are happening. And um, we're on Facebook, Sci-Fi Bulletin, and Twitter, same, Sci-Fi Bulletin. Um, don't do Instagram. There's just so many hours in the day, and Sci-Fi Bulletin isn't done. We don't. You will not get five million pop-ups. You will not get thousands of adverts. It's done very much as a very simple. Yeah, it's like it's Dreamwatch on the web. That cool. was where it starts from. It's that's the idea. Yeah, Dreamwatch we needed adverts in order to keep the thing going. Um, it's Sci-Fi Bulletin is something that keeps gives me a way to keep in touch with what's going on. It gets me access into pla- into to people to places that I wouldn't otherwise. And quite often, a lot of the work that I do in the editing sphere has come through contacts or stuff for the, for the website so it's been running we started it in the summer of 2011 so it's not far off its 10th anniversary or 9th anniversary this year um, it's not it doesn't try to be all singing or dancing it isn't it's uh, a place to find news particularly on Doctor Who and uh, Trek and things like that uh, we review as much of current genre TV and films as we can um, it's basically hopefully it's fun and hopefully again as with everything that I do um, the idea is that you learn something that you didn't know before you went beautiful um, we've come to the end I want to thank you for taking time out of your day to be on the show um, I hope you enjoyed it <laughs> yes it's very fun thank you thank you and thank you for chatting with Sherry. Thank you.